Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, we're, we're getting to the end of this, uh, this year's uh, Vipassana, uh, a structured study of the three marks of existence. Uh, I think this is the, there's five classes left, including this. Um, and these, all of these concluding um, suttas are uh, about what a Dhamma practice looks like. And this, this sutta um, is uh, it's extraordinary to me in a few, for a few reasons. One is what uh, Dhamma Dina teaches her husband and teaches us from 2,600 years ago. Uh, still relevant today. Very simple and direct sutta on the heart of the Dhamma. Gaining understanding, uh, penetrating insight into the three marks of existence. Uh, and then, uh, when I first came across this sutta, it really, uh, it challenged a belief that had been conditioning me by modern Buddhism, and that was that the Buddha re re resisted, unless it restricted, he didn't. The Buddha resisted having women in his Sangha, and he resisted, and, and the, the prevailing story is that he, he really resisted it until he couldn't resist it anymore, and that's a complete lie. The Buddha wanted women into, his, into the original Sangha as quickly as, could, as it could possibly be done his only concern was the women's safety. He wasn't concerned that the women, and that, that concern about women coming into the sangha, into the original sangha, is presented that the Buddha was afraid that women in the sangha, just by their very presence, was going to corrupt the sangha. And again, that's still taught today, and even in the woke culture today. The Buddha, of course, never thought. The Buddha taught the most egalitarian, egalitarian, equalitarian uh, philosophy of, uh, ever, ever taught. Um, and his only concern was because of the culture in India back then, and there's still remnants of this today, uh, that if women were allowed any position of learning, back then the caste system was that women, even if you were in the upper classes, you weren't allowed to learn anything, especially something as important as religion or spirituality. And if you was found out that you were, you were being taught this, the teacher would be put to death, you'd be put to death in probably generations in the future, the way that, that that culture was back then. And again, the Buddha just said, that's nonsense. He said, women are the same as men. They're, they're, they're six property people, that's all, just like he teaches everyone else. And he, he, he invited them into the Sangha with that caution, that be careful because there's a lot of people that are going to want to kill you just for practicing the Dhamma. And guess what? That hasn't changed that much even today. There's still many uh, modern Buddhist lineages that will not accept women as nuns. They won't give them, won't give them the, the, the orders. It's unconscionable how somebody could... Eh, I don't want to get on my high horse. I do that enough. Um, there, there, there's, there are few, and, and women have made great strides over the years uh, as establishing themselves in, in modern Buddhism. Um, but the one that really lags behind um, is the one that you would think would be the last. But the one that has resisted the most is modern Theravadan Buddhism. And they've done that going using something that was established 
we're talking way too much about this, but something that was established during the Buddhist time called the Patimoksha. That, that was the rules for the original Sangha. But even that was corrupted to justify keeping women out. And there was a rule there that in order to initiate people into the Sangha, that men had to have a certain number of um, uh, initiated and awakened souls on, the, uh, on that particular committee. And women had to have the same thing. And there had to be at least one woman on the induction committee, however that was formed. And of course, if you, if you keep women out, then you can claim that there's no woman to sit in what was called a quorum. There's no quorum, so you can't, you can't initiate any women. And that was used up until three years ago. And, have they finally changed that rule? Well, they, it, but there's still, there's still pockets, um, even in Southeast Asia, uh, where women just simply are not allowed into the, into the Sangha. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't want to sound like I'm on my high horse or it's a pet peeve, but it's noticeable has something, something that discriminatory and, and it's still clung to by people that call themselves Buddhists. That's, that's the thing that's egregious to me because if you actually, actually practice what the Buddha taught, you can never have a thought of, of like that, of exclusion or separation or anything else that would prejudge mm -hmm. another human being other than anything other than a six-property person. Color, religion, sex, it's all nonsense to someone who understands the Buddha, the Buddha's Dhamma. And I mean nonsense in, in the literal sense of the word. It does not make any sense to someone who understands. So now the sutta. Well, that was some introduction, wasn't yeah. it? I wanted to say that, that when you carefully read Fisaka's words here, the, the, the ex-husband, um, and, and the kind of questions that he asks, and, and the kind of answers that, that he gives, uh, I, I hear Fisaka being less than happy about the situation that, that he's being taught by his his ex-wife. Well, yeah, and you'll see this as the, as the sutta progresses. He, he gets this great teaching, but you were probably going to say this, weren't you? What? I cut you where you were going to say this, weren't no, you? Dhamma Dinner gives her husband, Vasaka, this great teaching. I mean, it really is an incredible teaching. And even after that teaching, and even after he felt the effects of the teaching, he still wanted to question the Buddha. Does, does this girl really know what she's talking about? And he did. And is that what was that you were yeah, referring to? Yeah. And, and, and when, he told him. And then the last line of it saying that the Fusaka was happy with, with what, what what he heard from the Buddha. I don't think he was. Well, that was how the that, that was how the translation was. So right. you know, everybody understands it. I've I've changed the translations uh, and I cut out anything that's magical or mystical and doesn't relate to dependent origination or form over truth. So what we what is left is what I think are the actual words of the Buddha. But of course, even some of those are characterizing a situation like this. Like that, that last line, uh, I felt the same way, that, that Visaka probably wasn't delighted, but that is a common closing to sutta. So mm -hmm. I just I leave that in. The word, the sangha, the hearts and minds of the, those in attendance were delighted to hear these words. So that, that's just a common ending. Thank you, Ram. Uh, the Kulavadala Sutta, just a uh, brief introduction. Visaka is seeking clarity on self-referential views, or anatta, and how self-identification with impermanent, with impermanent phenomena continually seeks to establish itself through clinging to all thoughts, words, objects, events, and ideas. And that's what continues to provide 
the means for continued ignorance of Four Noble Truths by distracting us through our own self-referential views. Which Orion is asking about concentration. That's the main reason why the Buddha taught jhana meditation, so that we could distinguish between eye-making and a, a six-property person is really what we're going down to. And along the way, that Dhamma practice at the point of contact, where we're practicing wise restraint, in this moment, as phenomena is arising and passing away, is where we apply this. Always. Because that's the only place it's occurring. Visaka asked Dhamma his wife, his ex-wife, Dhamma what is self-identification as described by the Buddha? Visaka, the Buddha teaches that self-identification is established by clinging to form, by clinging to feelings, by clinging to perceptions, by clinging to fabrications, and by clinging to consciousness. What are we clinging to there? Anybody but Ram or Dave? Maybe it's a few in the back. The five clinging aggregates, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, Ryan. I think it was, we probably shouldn't have put that on you either. So. <laughs> That's right, the five clinging aggregates, which are the Buddha's description of the ongoing personal experience of suffering. I'm going to skip that last line. No. The five clinging aggregates are the self-identification as taught by the Buddha. And again, that's how he, he describes the five clinging aggregates. Vasaka continues, Well, your answer is very helpful. What then is the origination of self-identification to form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, indeed in every thought? It is clinging, Vasaka, that brings continual establishment of anatta, wrong views of self, clinging born of craving, and accompanied by passion and delight. In other words, we delight in our own eye-making, in our own distraction, in our own continual establishment of a self in a fabricated world, in our fabricated mind. None of it is based in reality, although the ex- this is an important point, and it comes up often. How do we distinguish what's real and what's not? You have to understand, you have to have a well-concentrated mind and frame what you're looking at through the Eightfold Path, because that provides your clarity between eye-making and reality of Four Noble Truths. And it's the only way that any human being can actually recognize it. It's the nature of a conditioned mind to continually create conditioned experiences that condition us towards ignorance, continually. So no matter what we see, once our minds are rooted in ignorance, even a so-called religious-slash-spiritual-slash-Buddhist practice we will fabricate it and create magical, mystical, speculative religions about these notions when all we're doing is what Visaka is, what Dhammadin is teaching Visaka to not do. And you'll see how that plays out. Craving for sensual pleasure, craving for continued establishment in this world and in other, you could say, in all other realms. This is the origination of self-identification as taught by the Buddha. Visaka asked Amadena, what then is the cessation of self-identification? How do we stop this process? Visaka answers, the renunciation and remainderless fading away of the very clinging, born of craving that originates the continual establishment of anatta. The remainderless fading away of clinging. Another word for clinging would be, and craving would be desire. Desire, craving, initiating clinging. Whatever we crave for, whatever we, we desire, we will cling to because it's something that we've accomplished through eye-making. And remember that clinging to, we also cling to that which we're averse to. It's, a, the, it's just the other side of the same coin of clinging. 
This is the cessation of self-identification as taught by the Buddha. The remainderless fading away of clinging, born of craving. Visaka asked, what then, dear lady, is the path or the practice leading to the cessation of self-identification that is taught by the Buddha? Ram was referring to this. Visaka knows that Dhammadina knows what the Buddha's path is. But he's almost needling her with the question, do you know what the path is? This is what you're referring to, right? Of course she knows. Dhammadina is is well-known and well-established in the original Sangha. And notice that Dhammadina does not take any of this personal, including the most personal relationship any any woman could have or any, any human being could have, which is with their spouse. Friend Visaka. Notice she doesn't say you dumb ex-husband. <laughs> Friend Visaka. It is precisely the noble eightfold path <coughs> of right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right med- meditation that the Buddha teaches to develop the virtue, the concentration, and the wisdom required to abandon self-identification, to abandon clinging. Excuse me. <coughs> this is a great question here. <coughs> Visaka asks, is clinging the same as the five clinging aggregates. Clinging is not the same as the five clinging aggregates, Visaka, nor is it separate. How is that a consistent answer? It is the nature of the five clinging aggregates to cling. It is the function of the five clinging aggregates to cling. Once clinging is removed from the five clinging aggregates, then the function of the, of the aggregates is just to be the aggregates. In other words, with a mind that's, that is awakened, fully mature, form is form, feelings are feelings, perceptions are perceptions, fabrications are fabrications that are recognized, and consciousness is just human thinking. It's not taken personal. In other words, ultimately, we awaken to the fact that my thinking is just thinking. It's not me. There's no reason why I should self-identify with my own thoughts. And when you think about that, Think about how awful it would be if we didn't have a way of extricating ourselves from not recognizing that we're stuck in our thoughts, just like the Buddha described in the Gara Sutra. Because all the frustration in our lives ultimately comes from, from falling back into that view, just that I don't know what the hell is going on, and I don't know where to look for answers. Because we've just examined our whole way of looking at the world, and it's not working. It's not working in this moment, and we know that it's probably not going to be working sometime in the near future. And what does that do for us? It takes us all the way back to the first time we became conditioned and fearful about not knowing what's going on in our life. And for most of us, that happened around the time of three or four when human beings first start getting the glimpse of self-awareness. And that usually doesn't occur until we're around three or four years old. And it doesn't lock in until about 9, 10, 11, or 12, usually a little bit earlier in women and a little bit later in, in, in men or, or boys. But there's that gradual process of conditioning that we can all start looking back, and most of us will notice the powerful but, but um, unavoidable conditioning that took place during those six or seven years, and seven, or maybe even eight years. Nothing, and every human being goes through it. There's, if a situation was such that we could blame people, maybe blame family, blame parents, blame the environment, 
You can't, because if you're blaming, you're self-identifying. You, we recognize what occurred in our life. Everybody's experiences are different. Some are more difficult than others, but everybody has difficulties in life. Dukkha occurs. None of us escape it. The Saka asks the question, well, how does self-identification develop, even though I just described it? Those uninstructed in regard to the Dhamma, run-of-the-mill people, meaning people that are just born into this world, with no regard for the noble, for the noble ones or those of integrity, are deluded. It's a powerful statement. If you don't know the Four Noble Truths, you are deluded. They believe that form to be the self. This is why Dhammadin is just not making a blanket statement like many people make today and don't back it up. She backs it up. They believe that form to be the self. So if you believe your form to be the self and you believe the Dhamma and you believe Dhammadin, and we know we can because she's checked with the Buddha, if you believe the form to be yourself, you're deluded. And it's not just John Haskell that's saying it. It's Dhamma Dina and the Buddha saying it. It's the Dhamma that says it. And so now we, when we're reading this sutta, we're, coming, we're going to have to come to grips with that thing that everybody that, that engages in Dhamma practice concerns themselves with, at least initially. It feels like annihilation. What's going to happen to me when I let go of all self-referential views? Well, guess what? You're finally free. You're finally awake and you're finally able to have a human life. Because we cannot have a human life when we're fabricated into thinking we're having something other than a human life. As the Buddha would say, we've created something that is other than a self. So at this point, the Saka also understands each one of these questions he's asking. Yes. He's, he, he may be a lay person, but he's clearly <coughs> well-versed in, in the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. He is, but he but also he keeps going in a more and more theoretical vein. He's already been given the whole answer. He's been mm-hmm. he's been told that the Eightfold Path is what he's looking for. Yeah, and he's pulling. If he's looking for anything. Yeah, I look. I mean, look where it goes. Um, no regard for the noble ones or those of integrity are deluded. They believe that form to be the self, or that the self possesses form. Meaning that this, this body is me. And, we, and so we go through our life self-identifying that this body is mine. And that's the only way that we can be imprinted with the fabrication that forget about this life because our reward comes in a future life. If we weren't self-identifying with the form, we'd have no form to fabricate into a future belief. And so what we're doing is, is that circular thinking that the Buddha described in the Nagara Sutta we're conditioning our minds to believe that we can carry that same foolish mind into another life. And we're insisting that we do so. Why? Why would, it, why would any human being do it? Because it doesn't know what it's doing. It's ignorant of for a noble truth. Um, and again, the Buddha's not saying, and I'm not saying, and Dhammadinda's not saying that as a consequence of being a human being, you're an ignorant nothing. In fact, all the Buddha's ever saying, all, of the, all that I'm ever saying, all Dhammadina's ever saying, is that as a, as a, in relation to Four Noble Truths, you're ignorant of that. Everybody knows how to live. We all know how to get through our days, don't we? We just don't know how to do it. Let me use the word. We don't know how to do it with a lot of grace. Grace as it relates to the Buddha's Dhamma. And why? Because we were never taught. We were never taught. But here we have the class for how to wake up. And it's a simple and direct path. I can stay with it. 
They believe that the form to be the self or the self possesses form. They are further deluded to believe that their self-referential feelings are the self and that their perceptions of the self defines the self. But those perceptions are rooted in fabrications. They're rooted in ignorance. They believe that the fabrications that further establish the self to be the self. They assume that their self-referential thoughts establish the self. I think, therefore, I am. Wrong. Each of these five clinging aggregates are impermanent and arise from ignorance. They are anatta. They are not a self. So Dhammadina is, is really hitting Visakha between the eyes because of how he's asking these questions. So how does self-identification not develop? As Ram is pointing out, Visakha knows the answer to this. He knows that it's through developing the Eightfold Path, but he's checking on his wife. The well-instructed, Dhammadina answers, the well-instructed in regard to the Dhamma, with regard for the noble ones, and those with integrity, well-disciplined in their, in their practice, do not believe the form to be the self. They do not believe that feelings establish or define a self, or that perceptions define a self. They are free of mental fabrications, having no foundation for fabrications. What's the Buddha saying there? What are they free of then? What's the foundation for fabrications? They're free of self-reference. What's the foundation for self-reference? Excuse me? What are the, what's the foundation for self-reference? Ignorance. They do not assume, thank you, they do not assume that thoughts establish a self or that the self possesses thoughts. And that, what are that, that, that phrase that I said earlier from, I can't remember, this, how do you say Descartes? This, this Descartes. Was that? Descartes. Descartes. I think, therefore, I am one of the most famous sayings in human history, isn't it? Everybody's heard it and thinks that it's true. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha was saying, and Dhamma was saying, that's nonsense. If your thinking is rooted in ignorance, how could what you think describe what you are? It can't possibly, can it? According to the Dhamma. We can fabricate all we want. We can go through our life thinking that even though you're only 5'7", you're going to make center field for the Yankees. And I believed I could at some point. I mean, up until, you know, I mean, last week. <laughs> they do not assume that, conscious, that consciousness is a self or that the self possesses consciousness. Imagine the freedom to not be pushed around by my own fabrications. There is no self attached to these five clinging aggregates. They're just aggregates. Vasaka then asks if the Eightfold Path is fabricated or unfabricated. And Dhammadina replies that the Eightfold Path is fabricated. It's an important question. Visakha then inquires if the qualities of virtue, concentration, and wisdom are developed through the Eightfold Path, or do these three qualities inspire the Eightfold Path? Another important question. Visakha, the Eightfold Path is inspired by the qualities of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. The Eightfold Path is often characterized as a three-factored or a threefold eightfold path, meaning the characteristics, it has the characteristics of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood inspire the development of heightened virtue. 
right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation inspire the development of heightened concentration, and right view and right intention inspire and develop heightened wisdom. Visaka asks, what is, the, what is concentration and what is the framework for right concentration? What are the requisites and how is it developed? Do we talked a little bit about this earlier, Ryan. Samadhi, or non-distraction, is concentration. The framework for right concentration is the four foundations of mindfulness. That's what the instruction that we give in every jhana meditation session, the guidance, relates directly to the beginning of the four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. The four foundations of mindfulness, being mindful of the breath in the body, being mindful of feelings arising and passing away, being mindful of thoughts occurring and fading away, and being mindful of the present quality of mind. Right effort provides the requisites for right concentration. You should always endeavor, this is right effort, always endeavor with skillful desire and persistence for the non-arising of unskillful qualities and to abandon unskillful qualities that have arisen. What are the, how do we know these unskillful qualities? Through integrating the Eightfold Path and viewing this through the framework of that Eightfold Path. And Visaka, always endeavor with great desire, that skillful desire and persistence to generate skillful qualities that have yet arisen and to maintain skillful qualities that have arisen. Well, what are fabrications, dear lady? Dhammadini, there are three. Bodily fabrications, verbal fabrications, and mental fabrications. In and out breasts are bodily fabrications as breasts are generated from the clinging aggregate of form. Feelings, and that's why they, there might be some confusion, I'll, I'll touch on this later, but that's a good point to bring out. When, when we get stressed out, or if something scares us, every human being, the first thing they do is catch their breath. That's what we're talking about here. That's clinging to our breath in that moment. And as a point of safety, immediately that's conditioning our minds from what's occurring in that moment. Feelings and perceptions are mental fabrications as they are generated by the clinging aggregates of feelings and perceptions. So these Dhammadin is just percept is just describing how a conditioned mind becomes conditioned. It's just, it's just brilliant. Conditioned and discursive thought and evaluation are verbal fabrications as they are generated from the clinging aggregate of consciousness. It's just the feed Dhammadin is talking about the feedback loop there. How then, Vasaka asks, how then do the attainment of cessation of feelings and perception develop? Dhammadina answers, a well-informed person who has developed understanding through the Eightfold Path does not have a thought of attainment. Rather, their refined mindfulness leads to cessation of feelings and perceptions. This is the description of the culmination of the path. A well-informed person who has developed understanding through the Eightfold Path does not have a thought of attainment. So if during your, and this could even be within authentic Dhamma practice, And of course, along the way, it's okay to have the thought of attainment of even within your authentic Dhamma practice, but at some point you will have to come to grips with the fact that you're self-identifying with your Dhamma practice and simply see it as the ordinary expression of a human being, because that's all it ever is. Awakening at all, even during the, even maybe especially through the Buddhist Dhamma, is nothing special at all. It's the most ordinary thing a human being can ever do. 
Does everybody, does anybody not accept what I just said? Please speak up, because it's important. So John, would you say that it's the subtle fading away of conceit? That's a, that's a nice... Is that, I mean, because... Yes, a subtle, what David said, it's a subtle fading away of conceit. Yeah, Beautiful way of putting it. Because you're either conceited or you're awakened and you're not, but it doesn't happen instantaneously. It has to be some sort of... Yes. Most people, it would be, it would be that... Gra- that's why we need, we need great gentleness, because it is gradual, and we're always looking at ourselves. And we're in that process, including... Being in Dhamma practice, authentic Dhamma practice, and think that we're gaining something, that we're going to be awakened. I'm going to be the great John Haspel when I'm awakened. Wrong. I got to get rid of that notion if I hope to even have a chance of developing the Buddhist Dhamma. Because there's no John Haspel to awaken, is there? There's no John Haspel, the great Dhamma practitioner who's put all this effort in and then practice here and practice here and study with all the great teachers. That's not the John Haspel that's awakening. The John Haspel that's awakening is the self that is not attached to anything that John Haspel brought or gave birth to. It's a tough thing for people to to understand or conceive of until you start developing the Dhamma a little bit and you've let go of some of your self-referential views. Then it becomes clear. Then it's like a a shining beacon. It really is because you understand what you're doing. Even though you're not there and even though you're enjoying your momentary view of attainment, you recognize that even that is fabricated and has to be let go. That's what the Buddha is referring to as even the Eightfold Path is fabricated because we're doing it within a fabricated mind. Michael, you have your hand up? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and let me just say, Mike, if I didn't call on you, please just call my name out because I just barely saw you. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. Well, you can hobble for me. Whatever way it plays out, it's okay. Uh, so that thought of attainment, uh, then is a, uh, it's a fabrication in itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also, the thought of attainment then also would be taking you out of the uh, out of the present moment because the mind and body are you not united at that place yep. somewhere else. And, and yes, that 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 gentle but pernicious thought of attainment takes you out of what's occurring in this moment, and then it's in that moment that I have that thought. And again, it, it's I'm not even going to say that it's okay to have the thought. It's really not okay to have the thought. But it, it, it's, that, it's that idea of we learn the difference between acceptance and approval. I know I'm having a fabricated thought. If we're going to continue with the Dhamma, I have to learn at that point, I accept the fact that I'm having this thought, and I don't approve of it as far as it's something to recognize and abandon. But I do approve that this is what's occurring with me right now. I'm not judging myself harshly. The reason why we take to the Dhamma is because we have something to change or something to develop, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it would be foolish to judge ourselves harshly along the way, even 10 years along the way, to say, wow, I can't believe I still got fabrication. I can't believe, I'm, I, can't believe I haven't attained the goal yet. No. When there's ever that thought of even um, a mild frustration or impatience, that's eye-making. Take a breath and let it go. Michael? But not to be confused with skillful... Uh skillful desire which is practicing the Dhamma is a necessary thing um, if you want to awaken it's necessary that's the only time it's necessary but yeah skillful desire is a, it, 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 it's akin to right effort it's the desire that drives us to, to sit on our cushions twice a day skillful desire is a desire to leave your home you know at the end of a busy work day and drive to class notice all those people that didn't come to class tonight I'm just kidding the skillful desire is the desire 
to engage in Dhamma practice. Skillful desire is a desire in this moment to recognize I'm not engaged in Dhamma practice. Now I am. I've reunited my mind and my body. I think your conversation with Ryan before class was a perfect example. It was, really. I mean, spot on, he's aware. Yeah. And that's... Yeah, it really, it was probably one of the most brilliant uh, one-on-one discussions we've ever had in this room. It was too bad people weren't yeah. here. <laughs> I was just kidding. We had a very good talk, Ryan. Let me continue. Verbal fabrication cease then bodily fabrications, and finally mental fabrications. It's interesting where Dhammadina, and obviously she learned this from the Buddha, that as we, as we start developing cessation, verbal fabrications cease first. Relate that directly to the virtuous aspects. Most people, when they start developing the Dhamma, the first thing that they're able to develop is right speech. Verbal fabrication is the first thing that they recognize. Verbal fabrications are the first thing that most people let go of. What does it mean? It basically means that as Dharma practitioners, we stop BSing ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, that's the essence of Dharma practice. Another way of saying it is we, we start developing a measure of true self-honesty, meaning a, a, a six-property self as opposed to a fabricated self. And also, you're, you're starting to very quickly see the virtue of keeping your mouth shut. Yeah. If you if you don't have anything say that that would make a difference. It, there's there's such power in freedom and knowing, knowing when you can keep your mouth shut. By the way, folks, you can keep your mouth shut most of the time. Nobody's ever complained. Nobody's ever complained about somebody else being quiet. Some people when they want you to get engaged in them, but mm. quietness is I a good thing in the world. Marriages have failed on that one. <laughs> well, but but but. but it, it, Keeping yourself out of a situation is what we're talking about. Mm. Being disentangled in the world. How do we get entangled in the world? It's usually first by our speech. Mm. And that's the first thing that falls away, isn't it? As the Buddha talks about. And then from bodily fabrications. What does that, what does that mean, bodily fabrications? Well, I, a good example would be, as a beginning Dharma practitioner, I stop punching people. That's a good, if we're, if, we're, if we're prone to striking people when we're angry, that'd be a place to start, it's right there. But also it has to do with where do we bring our body? Begin by bringing your body to a place that actually practices an authentic coma. So you're not creating more bodily fabrications. But a, a real bodily fabrication is taking what's occurring in this body as real and as and personal, such as aging or going blind or anything else, not being tall enough, not being short enough, not being white enough, not being black enough, not being the right sex. And that's something else that I've been thinking about, and maybe I shouldn't touch on it here. No, but I'm going to talk about it one of these days. Right? So I don't want to mm-hmm. talk to my teachers first, but something that is, is really bubbling up to us in the surface of, in, our, um, in the world psyche that I think we're going to address here, but I want to have a teacher's meeting on it first. Dhamma continues. When a well-informed person emerges from the cessation of feelings and perceptions, they are empty. This is the Buddhist teaching on emptiness. Not as, a, as, a, as a, a, some type of thing to attain. I don't know how you would ever, ever attain emptiness or nothingness, but people set up their practice that way. To be empty of ignorance. When a well-informed person emerges from the cessation of feelings and perceptions, they are empty of clinging. 
free of self-identification and conditioned mind. The well-informed person's mind inclines to seclusion, what we're just talking about. Seclusion also means you keep your mouth shut when it's not necessary to talk. And away from delight and entanglement with the world. Away from delight. It's almost, well, it is, we're conditioned to believe that we should be delighted with the world. We should find out all the wonderful things in the world and grasp onto them. We should always seek the positive in all things because there is a positive nature to everything. Nonsense. Dukkha occurs. Dukkha isn't positive and dukkha isn't negative. And stress is what we're talking about. Stress arises from ignorance. Ignorance isn't positive and it isn't negative. Within a rule, a world ruled by ignorance, there isn't any positive or negative either. There's just ignorance manifesting. So if you're seeking, constantly seeking the positive, what are you looking at? You're looking at the, all the positive aspects of ignorance and you're refusing to look at all the negative aspects of ignorance. Why would you want to let go of ignorance if that's the mentality that you have? You're all, you've created a mentality of only clinging to, the, to what you think are the positive aspects of the manifestation of ignorance. How insane is that? Yet that's what we believe. We believe we can get through life if we only hold on to what's positive and only hold a positive frame of view. And we're taught that. That's one of the most hurtful things that anybody could ever be taught teach another human being if you know better. I happen to know better. That's why I don't talk about keeping things positive. Because if, if, you, if you constantly focus on positive, you're going to miss at least 50% of your life, but I would say about 80%. Visaka asks, how many kinds of feelings are there? There are only, in, in, the, the, Visaka answers that question, there are only three types of feelings. There, uh, Dhammadena answers the question, it's a rhetorical question. There are only three types of feelings, Visaka. There is a pleasant feeling, there are painful feelings, and there are neutral feelings. Well, how do we get so confused about our feelings? Because we take them personally, and we start a, 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 uh, placing a value and clinging those feelings to other people and other situations. This feeling arose from that argument. This feeling arose from that piece of chocolate cake. This feeling arose from the Yankees losing last night. And we carry that stuff around with us to the next day, and the next day, and the next day. This is how we condition our mind. And we qualify all these feelings into different categories? Different uh, yeah, kind of and every one of those categories is ruled by King Me. My feeling is deeper feeling. Yes, and it's mm -hmm. such an awful way to live, but we don't realize it. I didn't know why I was such a mess. I couldn't figure out why am I such a mess. And I kept blaming the world for everything that was wrong with me. And when that didn't fit anymore, I blamed myself for what was wrong with me. I wasn't tall enough to play for the Yankees. I'm not strong enough to drink two bottles of vodka and walk straight, a straight line. I'm not smart enough in business to make a million dollars in a week. I'm not handsome enough to get the girl I'm looking at. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And then the girl says, yes, and I'm the biggest guy in the world. And all of it is a fabrication. And I'm just setting myself up for another moment of disappointment until I understand I'm none of that. I'm none of that. Nothing in the world is me. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. And now I'm free to live my life as a mature human being. Do you see? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Now I'm a mature human being. 
What does an immature human being do? They take everything personal. This is me. This is mine. That's my hand that was in the cookie jar that you slapped. Keep your hand out of the cookie jar. That pleasant feeling, I was just talking about this, we, we, something happens, generates a pleasant feeling, that pleasant feeling then changes and becomes painful. Painful feelings that change and they become pleasant. Where's, now think about the confusion. Neutral feelings may change and they can change to either pleasure or pain. All feelings are subject to a nature, to impermanence. And, the, and what makes our feelings impermanent? Our perceptions. What affects our perceptions? Our fabrications. The Nagar Sutta. Pleasant feelings can give rise to passion obsession. And that, that, that from, in that moment, that pleasant feeling now went to something that is painful because it's an, it's an obsession with the, ple, with the pleasure. To a pleasant obsession. Painful feelings give rise to resistance obsession. Neutral feelings can give rise to ignorance obsession. That means you're... Uh, that's an obsession that you cannot stand to sit without something going on. It's, it's an obsession with, the, with you cannot stand to not have something going on. A mind like that will be obsessed with boredom. It cannot be bored. It always has to have something going on. And we do that with all kinds of ways. Um, our friends at Facebook and Twitter figured that out. The main reason why Facebook and Twitter is so successful is that it's the world's, they are the world's biggest distractions in the moment. I can, I can be stuck with my idea of how cute my cat is and that's boring, so let me share it with the world about how cute my cat is. And I can take that silly distraction and now extrapolate it to a worldwide distraction. And I can get everybody I know caught up in that distraction and they can go on and on and on. What is that called? It's called something that we never had a reference to anymore. That type of distraction. What's it called? Anybody know? It's called trending. What's the trending? What's the distraction? It's trending. That's the way they should describe it because that's what it is. And again, people will say, well, that's a good way of tracking information. Sure it is. There's still some, there's still some value in a completely ignorant world, but that value is only going to lead to more ignorance. Again, that's attaching something positive to something that has none of those qualities around it. Neutral feelings can give rise to ignorance obsession. When a well-informed person is, is withdrawn from the obsession of sensual fulfillment, that's what all that is, sensual fulfillment, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, through meditative absorption, withdrawn from unskillful qualities through meditative absorption, Withdrawn from unskillful qualities through concentration. Through that meditative absorption, they abandon passion and they abandon passion and passion obsession. Yearning for final liberation, resistance obsession is also abandoned. How do we do it? Because we no longer place value on it. We we cling to resistance obsession because we think we need to continually resist that which we resist. What's the famous saying? That's what we resist, persists. And of course it does. Why? Because we're clinging to it. Anything that we resist, we're literally saying, I want this to continue in my life. Deepening meditative absorption, 
Ignorance, obsession is abandoned. Is abandoned. Dear lady, what then lies on the other side of ignorance? Clear knowing, meaning full insight, lies on the other side of ignorance. And Visaka, with clear knowing, comes release from clinging. From release from clinging comes complete unbinding. Unbinding from what? Unbinding from any fabricated view. Unbinding from anything that has that could be provoked by ignorance. Dhamma what then lies on the other side of unbinding? This is where Visaka is, is, is taking Dhamma too far. Visaka, you have gone too far. Listen to the explanation. It's almost an admonition. Your clinging mind, I kind of think Dhamma is liking this part of it, but that's my own thing. Your clinging mind has, has demanded too many answers and your question will lead to only more confusion and suffering. The Buddha would often tell people, answer people that were asking questions that had no relevance to the Dhamma. It's your questions that are confusing you. Let go of the question. Rather than someone who is full of arrogance feel the need to answer everybody's question, because that would prove how much they know, the Buddha is not concerned about misleading people by irrelevant questions just to prove that they know something. He would always respond, it's your questions that are, that are confusing you. Let go of the questions. Dhammadin is saying something similar here. Your clinging mind has demanded too many answers and your question will lead to only more confusion and suffering. The Buddha's path, the Eightfold Path, culminates in unbinding. So a direct answer to Visaka's question. How do we get through unbinding? The Eightfold Path. But she's also reminding Visaka, you've got to actually engage in the path. You can't just believe in the path. This is not a religion. It's not salvation. You've got to do something. You've got to develop an eightfold path. But if you do, you can expect complete unbinding. That which you thought you could attain, you can actually develop. That's a big difference between attainment and develop, isn't it? Develop is right effort. Develop means that I have to continue with what I'm doing. I'm developing this. Attainment is my vision is on, or my view is on, where I'm going. Two different things. Important to keep that clear. If you wish, go to the Buddha and ask him. Let his answer be enough. Dhamma then understood that with that last question, Visaka is going too far. He's trying to prove Dhamma Dinner wrong or get to the point of argument. And Visaka, Dhammadin is saying, enough. I've given you everything. Now go ask the Buddha and see if I'm correct. Visaka was delighted in Dhammadin's teachings, maybe. He bowed to her and left for the Buddha. Finding the Buddha nearby, he sat to one side of the Buddha and recounted what Dhammadin told him. The Buddha replied, Dhammadin is very wise and of great discernment. So much for the Buddha's dis- dismissal of women, huh? I would have answered your questions exact, exactly as she has. This is how you should remember her teachings. Vasaka was pleased by the Buddha's confirmation. That's the end of this, this wonderful sutra. Um, let's go online uh, and see how you do. Uh, see, what, see how you do, see what you have to say. Jane, how are you tonight? Properties, and so therefore I had the opportunity to, you know, 
develop a dog practice. Yeah. And just think about that, Jane. If if I was of that mindset and decided when I was going to start teaching the Dhamma that you know it's only it's only men that can learn certain aspects or only men that go on retreat or whatever other it, it just where would where would that leave you? And it would be such a hurtful thing. But of course, the Buddha never taught that. How could it? How could a human being that taught that human beings could only be of six properties and nothing more exclude any human being? It just wouldn't make sense. So. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, John. Hello, Anthony. Hi, John. How are everyone? Um, glad to be here. I enjoyed the sutta, and I will just exercise noble silence tonight. I'm glad you joined us. Thanks, Anthony. Hello, Meg. Hi, John. Um, there's a lot, of, lot to unpack there. Um, I, it, it kind of makes me realize how important it is to really focus on on the self and, you know, working on yourself rather than trying to fix other people. Yeah. Because this, um, I was just thinking that, you know, this misunderstanding of the self is also what creates that we create this misunderstanding of others yep. and then we use the misunderstanding of others to support our misunderstanding of ourself <laughs> that's brilliant Meg yep. and, and, and here's an example is this um, critical race theory you know so so we're talking about racism, but what do we do? We say, well, you're dark-skinned, so you're a victim. And you're light-skinned, so you're an oppressor. Yeah. So the reason you're a victim is because this little child over here is white. That's the most ludicrous so it's thing awful, isn't it? I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. It's like, why would you want to, to take your ignorance about why you're a victim and put that on somebody else and make it their responsibility. You know, Because that's a mind clinging to ignorance. What's that? That's a mind clinging to ignorance, isn't it? It, it yeah, can only continue by, by, by roping in other minds, like minds. Yeah, uh, and, and, I, and I'm like seeing this everywhere and it, it's, it's, it can, it's kind of crazy making, you know? Yeah, well, it, it, and this is similar to what we, me and you have been talking about in the last couple of weeks as well. The, the sutta relates directly to that. Um, something that uh, I noticed in the last week or two, but there's a lot of parents um, are speaking out against that right now. And I think it was just a matter of time between before reasonable people um, started realizing what is going on and uh, really, really rejecting it. So they're... they're uh, um, there's a lot of instances now where people are standing up against the so-called woke movement, and uh, there's a beautiful little girl. I think I got to tell the story. I'm sorry. Um, she went on. Uh, I can't remember where the school was, but she went in front of her school board. She was so eloquent, and what bothered her, what she was complaining about, was that the school had about six months ago or nine months ago said we're not going to have any kind of political activity or speech or anything sponsored by the school. It was no, no longer going to be political. And, you know, during this, these times, it's probably a good idea, especially with young children, except they started putting up BLM posters all over the school. And this girl went to the principal and said, I want you to take that down. That, that, that's political. And the principal said, there's no way. We're never, ever going to take that down. 
and they showed her this, this really beautiful speech going into how this affected her. And then, uh, I'll get into the whole, I can tell that story all night. Um, she affected everyone in that room, but that's the kind of mind that I think is, is going to raise up now and, and, and maybe provide some um, sanity to what's going on here, Meg. Uh, it, and again, we also have to remember that what the Buddha is, what's occurring now, the Buddha described it wonderfully 2,600 years ago in the Loka Sutta. You know, the world is a flame, a flame with what? A flame with the, with the fires of passion. And that's, that's where that's rooted in. You know? so, uh, thank you, Mike. I, I just wanted to say I saw the speech by that little girl. Oh, you saw it. Wasn't it wonderful? She was nine years old, and no. she was more clear. She had more clarity and more understanding about the whole situation than most adults that I know. Oh yeah, I was thinking the same thing. But I was she, blown away by it. I, yeah, I, I didn't hear how old she was. I was thinking she's got to be fifteen or sixteen the way she, she carried nine, herself. Nine years old. And where do you remember the state? Uh, I don't, but I think no, I can't remember. But yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah, I think we'll see it again. It was, it was just, yeah, I think we will too. Yeah. Oh. Thank you, John. Glad you joined. Ryan, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. It was a very interesting discussion. Uh, I don't really have anything to ask or contribute. But Glad you're here. <laughs> Hello, Ron. Hello, John. Um, I'm really amazed at, at Damodina's patience with, <laughs> with Fasad because he just... After he's been told very clearly what is, I mean, he asked, "What you know? What, what, what am I supposed to do?" And she says, "Follow the path." And he just keeps coming back and coming back with more refined arguments, and she just very patiently sets it all straight, you know, until he finally, you know, just goes too far, and. Um, it's uh, it's it's truly a, a, a show of restraint uh, from her side. That's that's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have smacked the man. <laughs> well, you got me thinking of a poem in the, in the Terra Gothas, is it uh, women, and she talks about. I can't remember the poem, but I, maybe we'll get to it uh, about her 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 talk, referring to her husband as uh, that that old crooked man, old crooked man with the with this. Stinky fish pot or something like that. <laughs> yes, and that was her husband. After her, she left all that behind right? yeah, and awakened. Thank you, Ron. Hello, David. Hello, John. I'm good tonight. Thank you. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. Uh, hey, I was just uh, listening. I just want to run something by you. Walk it by me. I'm old. <laughs> Just give me one second. Oh, it's not okay. Okay, we're going to turn that pencil off. Just have to go. It's John. The chill on tape like the half minute. All right. There's three types of, there's, I'm going to do it out the proposal. There's three types of feelings, right? Mm -hmm. um, pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain, right? Yep. So, um, 
once understanding that and abandoning that, isn't that perception and non-perception? Perception and non-perception, and one neither perception, non-perception. Isn't that the dimension of 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 perception and non-perception? Right? Well, when the Buddha is talking about those, um, all of those realms, he's relating carrying carrying the six property person who's living in a perception, and telling us that you can even create that in a in a non in a non-physical way. That perception persists. And it becomes a, it becomes a, how do I describe this? Perception and non-perception is the Buddha's description of how a mind can take, a mind rooted in ignorance will take something and create a, I can't think of the right word. I keep wanting to use the word analog, but it's not really the right way. It kind of fits. Well, it's the, isn't that forming the phenomenal world? Yes, it, 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 perception and non-perception is providing the vehicle for that mind to also live in a, in, in a fabrication. Perception and non-perception. Nothingness and, and the... How do I explain this? Well, it, it all needs to be abandoned. That's, that's what, yeah, what, the, what I'm getting hung, hung up on is explain that last point. That it... Perception and non-perception simply refers to a mind that will go to the physical world and the non-physical world. Because there has to be an accounting for that in both worlds, because we carry it through. It doesn't make the non-physical world real, but because our minds are residing there, there has to be a way of addressing it. Perception, non-perception. Does that... Clear it up? No. (laughs) (laughs) So where are you confused? It can be. It's... It, it's a theoretical framework that, that they used to work in all the time, and they had these these monstrous debates about it, and it was all about nothing. Basically. Yeah, it was a the, the, again they, it's they, a distraction, just a distraction. All those yeah, all the Buddha's referring to it, and it's the same. It's a common theme: is anything that is fabricated, speculated, not if it cannot be directly experienced by a human being, it's not part of the Dhamma. And so in our minds, we create these... It, it's, it's nonsense to even create the thought of a perception or a non-perception. Where, where, would, where would the non-perception reside in a physical universe that we live in? It can't. So the, the idea of it is nonsense, but it's addressed because a human mind rooted in ignorance is full of nonsense. But could, it, could a non-perception also be a suppression of that which uh, you want to abandon? I don't know. I, I don't know that it needs to be classified that way. It really, what things that we suppress are in the Dhamma are just recognized as conditioned mind. Whatever we suppress, we suppress it because we're clinging to it. Okay, so, alright, because perception is basically uh, is that which uh, makes an impression on the mind, whether we like or dislike, we find favor with or disfavor with. Well, look at, look at the progression. A, a perception follows the feeling. So a perception is a... Try to use a different word than perception. Let me, I'm going to use the root of the word. A perception is the way that mind rooted in ignorance is perceiving what's occurring. Another word for perceiving is how am I seeing this? How am I perceiving that water bottle? Well, I'm perceiving it as it's a little bit too tall. I like ones that are much shorter. 
The best water bottles are shorter. They're about eight inches, not stupid ones like that that are ten. That's the perception, isn't it? That's what forms conditioning. Yep, and so now, so the fabrication is, now I've just introduced into the world that anything above it in an eight-inch water bottle is bad. That's the fabrication, because you might buy into it because you respect me. Or maybe you don't, but you still buy into it because you're clinging to something. That's a perception. And the difference... And, and so then... Well, and the difference that she described to her husband, the difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner, mm -hmm. that someone who isn't practicing Buddha's Dhamma will fabricate, and someone who is practicing within the framework is dealing with that ignorance. Yep. Therefore, when he runs into the contact, it's just a feeling. Yeah. And as we've heard in other suits, a feeling is just a feeling, a thought is just a thought. That, that's even a hard thing for people, especially in the beginning of practice, to even think of a feeling as just a feeling. Because up until that point, you have taken every feeling you've ever had and personalized it. You can't not. A human being cannot personalize feelings. It cannot personalize thoughts not personalized thoughts. It's just the nature of a mind rooted in ignorance to do that. Again, people would ask the question, well, how did the human race get so screwed up? Ignorance of Four Noble Truths. A mind that is not rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths will not fall into any of the ills that we have since the beginning of time. It's just not capable of any type of that so-called antisocial behavior. It's incapable of a mind that is awakened. But here it is, and it's never changed, has it? And it won't change until we awaken. Did that bring some clarity, Michael? Yeah, I, you know, I, I kick that uh, concept around a bit. You know, uh, it's uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I kind of, uh, I kind of thought it was uh, just that. I thought it was uh, basically there's extremes and everything. There's value placed on everything, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That which we desire, we place a higher value on, on that which we don't desire, right? Or that's yep. which we uh, avoid. Well, we place a value on that, yeah. Yeah, so, and there's different value levels on things, you know, and uh, the, whole, the whole idea that we're placing value on something is, we're, that's, uh, that's self-referential because yep. we're, again, we're desiring something or, or we have an aversion to something. Yeah. So Even think kind of, about, oh, sorry, go ahead. This concept of opposites and neither opposites, that which lies between, always seems like it comes up and it's throughout the whole study, so to say, and many studies that we've gone through here now. So I'm just trying to figure out, like I'm pretty sure that it's like, it's non-value on either one uh, because it's non-attachment to yep. either, either one. And that, non-attachment or non, non let's say non-value, equal value on both, then that would uh, actually, um, when we don't place a value, then we don't have a like or a dislike of something. Then, again, in desire or aversion, then we find ourselves in a place of we're not attached yeah. to, and our phenomenal world starts breaking down from the non-attachment to either to abandoning the whole concept of perception and not perception. Yes, it, it, it's just brilliant, Michael. You said something, the phenomenal world breaks down. 
Yes, because that's, it says it here. She says uh, that's when it's... Uh, in relation to the dollar. That's the unbinding. Yeah. Is when that, when this there's no value on anything and there's a, yep. a level playing field, so to say. Yeah, and that, that again, she's describing to Visaka what the quality of an awakened mind, what it will naturally do. Yes. And, and, and you're... And all of that is a description of a lack of eye making, isn't it? Yes. It's all getting to the heart yes, of the You described it beautifully, Michael. Because if there's, if, again, like in, if there's no desire uh, or aversion, then there, there's, no, there's no eye making in this whole yeah. thing. If there's a level playing field here, there's nothing to desire here in non attachment, nor. Well, is there okay, yeah, what, 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 what could a human being possibly desire? At that point, yes, there is yeah. nothing. So the only way I could desire something is if I, if I think I need... I mean, the, the Buddha said we need... Every human being needs four things, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. But those are readily available. Almost every human being can get those four things without too much trouble. You, you, you might have to apply yourself. It doesn't mean it's, it's going to be given to you. But, I mean, I was watching... I, I got into those reality shows a while ago. Not, not forever, but people living in Alaska that kind of thing. And it, it was amazing to me that, that not, no, no stores, no nothing around, and these people lived pretty good lives. If I was a younger man, I might think of going up there. Uh, it, I mean, they, they proved the point. They generated their own food, their own clothing, their own shelter, their own medicine, and it, they lived good lives. I don't know if most people want to live you know, in that type of climate, but the point is we don't need to be always acquiring things I was going to say to be happy. In fact, if we want to be happy, we have to stop the need for acquisition. It doesn't mean we won't be in possession of things as human beings. We just won't be ruled by them. We won't need them to be to live in the world. Well, not only not not, not only do uh, we not not acquire them, we don't uh, are, but also to uh, uh, to abandon the what's in our mind that desires that for. Let's say Maserati. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that's the whole practice. Recognize what we're, what's distracting us and let us go. Let it go. Thank you, Michael. Hello, Julia. Hello, John. Um, I, I love the sutta. I really don't have anything else to add, but I just, I really enjoy, yeah. you know, the Tamadina giving a, a lesson to her. Yeah, one of my husband. Yeah. <laughs> I just like I, I, there's 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 a few suttas that I remember reading it for the first time, and this was one of them. Yeah, me too. Because of what was in it, but also just the, you know, just the 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 setting. You know, I just think it's marvelous. And it's, I, I I understand everything finally. You know, all the all the, the things that she's saying. That's pretty good, Julie. I, I I understand it. Not only that, but I can see myself like actually when something occurs. I feel a feeling arise. I immediately, you know, take a breath and I recognize my my my, my mind if it's distracted with it or if it's going to cling, you know. Yeah. And I usually can douse it, let it and let it go. So I, I feel like every day I, I feel like I'm, I see myself doing this more and more often, and I'm like, wow, the eight the eightfold path really is like part of the framework that I'm walking around with, and it's it's in every aspect of my day. Even even yesterday when I was walking on a path with the dog, and it was so hot, it was a couple of times I, I was actually complaining a lot about the heat. <laughs> and I was recognizing, I'm like, you know what, this is me. 
Yeah. Having an aversion to the yeah. heat. Yeah, that's that is it. You weren't, just the heat. you weren't doing something wrong being averse to the heat, just recognize and let it go. I recognize that my mind was distracted by yep. it, that I, that I let it go with it. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm going to, it's just a walk. Yeah, and <laughs> when you let it go, it was still hot, but it didn't It didn't have to be any different. It wasn't, su- it wasn't such a disturbance to yeah, me, you know? So, but it's, it's just simple things like that. But. So, Julia, in, in really, it's just about a year since you started coming, isn't it? Or two years, I can't remember. It might be two years. Two years, years, that's right, yeah. Almost, yeah. You've developed the Dhamma to a pretty remarkable level, both you and Michael, to see that. I mean, that's the essence of the Dhamma, is that eye-making. Good for you. Good for everyone. Thank you, John. Uh, Yeah, I just, I love the suit. I love the talk we had tonight. Um, We'll continue. uh, Like I said, there's four more classes. I'm going to add the Upada Sutta to the end of this and probably add it to the book uh, that I hope will be published soon. Um, but we'll conclude with meta as we always do. If I can find my. So these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, as uh, presented by the Amaravati Monastery in London. The Buddha's words This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.